Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews with your host, Aaron Martell. Hello there, I'm Aaron Martell, and welcome to Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews, a podcast where I talk about and review a rock album of my choice. Today I'm flying solo, no co-pilots, but if you're listening and you're interested in coming on the show to review an album with me, I'm always on the lookout for co-pilots to host the podcast with me. There are a few ways to get in touch with me, which I'll go over at the end of the show. So on this week's episode, I'm going to talk about the Velvet Underground's 1968 album, White Light, White Heat. By the time I found out about the Velvet Underground in the early 90s, I already had a couple of Lou Reed solo records, and I knew him as a solo artist and the lead singer for Metallica. I had no idea that he was in an earlier band, but thanks to my trusty Rolling Stone record guide, I stumbled across the Velvets and thought, no shit, Lou Reed was in a band at first. Not only that, but the book gave glowing reviews to most of the VU albums, so I figured I had to give them a try. I started off with a best-of CD that gave a decent overview of the Velvet's career, though it leaned heavily on the band's debut album, The Velvet Underground and Nico. Though I didn't know a single track, I took to the music immediately, connecting to the dark lyrical imagery and the contrast in sound from pop prettiness to abrasive noisy rock. So I decided to investigate the VU further, collecting all the albums in order of release, and there you have it. Now I'll pass on some basic facts about White Light, White Heat, brought to you by Wikipedia. It's a wiki world, you just live in it. White Light, White Heat is the second studio album by American rock band The Velvet Underground, released on January 30th, 1968 on the Verve label. It was produced by Tom Wilson and recorded in September 1967 at Scepter Studios, Manhattan, New York City, New York. It reached number 199 on the U.S. Billboard 200 and has not received any certifications. Here I'll give you the band's lineup card. We have Lou Reed on lead vocals, lead guitar, and rhythm guitar. John Cale on lead vocals, backing vocals, spoken word, electric viola, vox continental organ, piano, bass guitar, and medical sound effects. Sterling Morrison on lead guitar, rhythm guitar, bass guitar, backing vocals, and medical sound effects. And Maureen Moe Tucker on percussion, drums, and tambourine. It's time now to get into a track-by-track discussion of the album. Kicking things off is the title track, White Light, White Heat, written by Lou Reed. We jump right into this track with a vocal wide light, and it feels like we're already in the middle of the song. Each line in the verse begins with either white light or white heat, and then Lou Reed gives us a lyrical description of what it's like to feel a methamphetamine rush. 
The song carries a pulsing, insistent rhythm, punctuated by a constant pounding piano by John Cale, done in a barrel house style. The guitars are so distorted and noisy, it's kind of hard to make out exactly what the fuck they're playing. As the song ends, the bass gets turned up and plays a distorted outro that I read is supposed to mimic the meth rush. And let's get this out of the way before we go any further. This record sounds like shit. I mean, we're talking lo-fi, barely produced, distractingly noisy shit. To those who love this album, it's part of its charm. But if you're the type of listener who loves pristine, crystal clear production values, this will immediately turn you off. Me? I dig it, baby. I'm on board. This track was a staple of the Velvet's live set and was covered by David Bowie, who does a pretty good job with it, but I prefer this one. The next track is The Gift, written by the entire band. Tossing and turning beneath his pleated quilt protector, tears welling in his eyes as he pictured Marsha, her sworn vows overcome by liquor and the smooth soothings of some Neanderthal, finally submitting to the final caresses of sexual oblivion. It was more than the human mind could bear. Visions of Marsha's faithlessness haunted him. Daytime fantasies of sexual abandon permeated his thoughts. When you listen to this through speakers or headphones, on the right side you hear the music, which is basically a two-chord vamp that goes on for over eight minutes, a droning groove that meanders along with some casual feedback-drenched soloing over the top. This musical backdrop is low-energy and nearly trance-inducing, while on the left side of the track, John gives a spoken word short story that was written by Lou in a deadpan voice with very low levels of inflection and almost zero excitement. The tale is about a guy named Waldo who worries about his long-distance relationship and decides to mail himself to his girlfriend as he can't afford to travel in a normal fashion. I won't reveal much more about what happens, but hearing John's soothing Welsh accent describe the events of the story fits in nicely with the droning musical accompaniment. The Velvet Underground were always good for this kind of avant-garde, experimental type of music, and you may find it different and intriguing, or boring as watching paint dry, depending on how you're so inclined. I dig it. The story's pretty humorous and interesting enough to keep my attention. But just like the first track, the production is abominable. Moving on, we get Lady Godiva's Operation, written by Lou Reed. Lady Godiva dressed so demurely at the head of another curly-haired boy Just another toy Sick with silence, she weeps sincerely Saying words that have oh so clearly been said this one has Sterling Morrison on bass and John on electric viola contributing to the eternal drone with no discernible structure or any type of chorus to speak of. I do like the song's basic melody, sung in the beginning by John Solo, and then in the second half of the song, John and Lou trade vocal lines. And with John's Welsh accent and Lou's New York accent going back and forth, the effect is quite jarring, but that's what the band seems to be going for on the whole record anyway. The lyrics, from what I can gather, seem to be about a drag queen who goes to get a sex change operation and during the procedure begins to wake up, and so the doctor ends up giving him a lobotomy. I know that sounds horrible, but somehow it's presented in a black humor sort of vein, and it makes me chuckle. 
The viola is an interesting sonic addition and showcases what John Cale brought to the Velvet Underground. Prior to the VU, he had a classical music background, but soon developed an interest in the avant-garde, and John was the one who most pushed for the experimental elements in the Velvet's music. Here, the viola adds just the right touch of weirdness to put across an already weird song, and I like this track, too. So let's continue with Here She Comes Now, written by Lou Reed, Sterling Morrison, and John Cale. This is the shortest track on the album, clocking in at 2 minutes 2 seconds, as well as the most traditional in terms of structure and instrumentation. The tune is gentle and pretty, and Lou sings this with a sensitivity he was always capable of, but didn't often display. Lou had a background in the mid-60s as a staff songwriter for Pickwick Records, so he was familiar with pop songcraft, and it occasionally came through in his writing. His voice was a unique instrument. It had a nasal, half-singing, half-talking quality to it. That was certainly an acquired taste for the average listener, but if you got it, you could connect to the emotional depth of the lyrical content, or the shallowness, depending on the song. (laughs) The simple, repeating lyrics to this track are apparently wide open to interpretation. I've read it could be about everything from a female orgasm to lose guitar, as she's made of wood, but I guess I just go with the flow on this one and don't think about it too much. John's viola is back, but instead of acting as an instrument of noise, it's pushed back in the mix and adds to the prettiness. But once again, the murky production buries the layers of the track and keeps it from reaching its full potential, in my opinion. So let's flip the imaginary record over and drop the imaginary needle on the penultimate track, I Heard Her Call My Name, written by Lou Reed. The tempo picks back up, and the noisy guitars return with a vengeance on this track, as the band cranks up the feedback, and Lou plays some ear-piercing solos throughout. This is just an all-out assault on your eardrums, almost daring you to see if you can take it. Sterling plays some distorted-as-fuck rhythm guitar underneath, and John's bass competes with the guitars for sonic space as well. The lyrics are somewhat obscure, but it seems to be about a dead girl who Lou hallucinates is calling his name. At least that's my interpretation. The backing vocals actually provide a good I heard her call my name hook. But man, Lou's guitar. Crank that up on your headphones and you'll be asking for a headache. Shit. And that brings us to the final track, Sister Ray, written by the entire band. Oh no man, I haven't got the time time. Sucking on the ding dong. Sucking on my ding dong. Oh, she does good like Sister Ray did. I 
Did you like that little clip of the song? If you did, well, then you're in luck. You'll get to hear 17 more minutes of that. I'm not kidding. You want to talk about the eternal drone? This one delivers it big time. The band improvised this in one take, and it sounds like it. John plays some Vox Continental organ through a distorted guitar amplifier and provides a big part of the sound while the guitars chug out the rhythm and the overall effect at times rises to a big tidal wave of noise that threatens to engulf most of Indonesia. Oh yeah, there's percussion on all these tracks too, so I guess now's a good time to talk about Mo Tucker. She was that rarity, a woman who actually played an instrument in a rock band as opposed to being just a singer but she did have an androgynous physical appearance, so she probably could have passed off as a guy anyway. Her approach to the drums was minimalist. She played standing up, with a drum kit consisting of toms, a snare, and an upturned bass drum played with mallets instead of drumsticks. She rarely used cymbals, believing that her job was just to keep time and cymbals would drown out the other instruments. Could you imagine if there were cymbals on this album? Mo did a great job as the Velvet's timekeeper, and she was a valuable member of the band, a true team player. But back to Sister Ray. So all this noise is going on and on and on, and over the din, Lou barks out some lyrics, which seem to describe a drug-fueled orgy with multiple characters and sucking on ding-dongs and Lou searching for his main line and he couldn't hit it sideways. I don't really get it, so I'll leave it to the man himself to let you in on it. Quoting Lou Reed... Sister Ray was done as a joke. No, not as a joke, but it has eight characters in it, and this guy gets killed and nobody does anything. It was built around this story that I wrote about this scene of total debauchery and decay. I like to think of Sister Ray as a transvestite smack dealer. The situation is a bunch of drag queens taking some sailors home with them, shooting up on smack and having this orgy when the police appear. Yup, exactly what I thought. The way I see it, Either you get caught up in the drone and you just ride along with it, or your ass is fucking bored for 17 minutes. Myself, there are times I can hang with it, but more often than not, I wish they'd cut this bloated bastard in half. Though there's a lot I love about it, it's gotta be Aaron's Stinky Stinker. Just because it's too damn long. Now that the track by track is done, I'll go into my final thoughts and album rating. For you new listeners, the rating is a 0 to 5 system, with 5 being a favorite album of mine, all the way down to a 0, which is complete crap. Famed musician and producer Brian Eno supposedly once said that The Velvet Underground's first album only sold 30,000 copies during its first 5 years, but everyone who bought one of those 30,000 copies started a band. The VU's influence on popular and indie music is gigantic. The band practically invented what's now considered alternative music, and every band from U2 to R.E.M. to Sonic Youth owed a huge debt to the Velvets. When they were an active band, nobody gave a shit about them, and the VU's album sales were always piss poor. They only put out four studio albums while there was a fifth album, but it was without Lou Reed, so it doesn't count along with some live albums and compilations, and each album had a different feel and sound that broadened the band's musical ambitions and reach. Years later, as the VU's influence began to take hold, big-name music critics showered the Velvets with praise, correctly calling them the most influential band since the Beatles. 
Not only was their sound arty and avant-garde, their lyrics dealt with heavy themes like drugs, violence, and sadomasochism, spitting in the face of the flower-power hippie sensibilities of a lot of American music at the time. The Doors dealt with dark themes, too, and they were the Velvet's peers. In the early days, the Velvet Underground got noticed by the famous artist Andy Warhol, who became their manager and produced their first album. For a time, the Velvets were the house band for Warhol's traveling media circus, The Exploding Plastic Inevitable, which got them some exposure, but didn't do shit for their record sales. By the time of White Light, White Heat, the VU had fired Warhol, and they set out to make a statement of their own, resulting in this slab of noise. It only has six songs, but each one makes an impact in different ways. After this, tensions between Lou Reed and John Cale would fester until John was fired from the band in September 1968. The Velvets would go on to record two far more commercially accessible albums with John's replacement Doug Yule, and then Lou quit the band in late 1970. Both John and Lou would have long and productive solo careers, but that's for another podcast. I really dig this record. I always have. It grabbed me immediately, and I give it a four and a half. It's interesting. In recent years, there's been a huge backlash against this band over the internet, with people calling them boring or overrated. Mostly, I guess, because the critics have been fawning over them for so long. But okay, even if you don't dig their music, you have to acknowledge the enormous impact the Velvet Underground have had on modern music since they first appeared. And if you don't, you either don't know or don't get where the entire alternative music scene originated from. I fucking dig the Velvet Underground. So there. I'd now like to share a review of the podcast. It's a five-star review, and it comes to us from Bob Brinker on Facebook. I quote, Good stuff. Reviews the music I love. I would love to co-host. Good job. Keep it going. Thanks so much for the review, Bob. And hell yeah, you can co-host. Send me an email or a Facebook Messenger text, and we can discuss the details and logistics and what album you want to cover. And to everyone else who listens, likes, shares, and or reviews the podcast, thank you all so much for your support. Rock on. And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast at places like iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, TuneIn, and Spotify. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review of it. If you take the time to do that, I'll read your review right here on the show. If you'd like to contact me directly, I can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com and also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast. You can also review the show on Facebook if you prefer to do it that way. And yes, I'll read your Facebook review on the podcast, just like I did Bob Brinker's. You want to come on the podcast and talk about an album with me? Shoot me an email. We'll set it up. I'm always looking for co-pilots to host the show with me. And I would also welcome any requests or suggestions for albums to cover. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. I'd love to hear from you. And lastly... Here at R4, we thank you so much for giving this podcast a listen, and a massive thank you if you like and support the show. Take care, and I'll catch you later.
there's a lot I love about this song, but it's gotta be Aaron's stinky stinking. Just because it's too damn long.